0: Take out your scriptures and open them to John chapter 7. We'll be looking at the whole chapter. And just a little note, there'll be, uh, so I don't have people coming up to me, which I love after the service when I change it from three points to four points or four points to three points. It's going to be three points, not four points. Shows that you care. In 1977, a lot of us witnessed or knew about NASA launching the Voyager space probes, Voyager 1 and 2, to explore the galaxy. Placed in those space probes were solid gold records, LPs, not CDs, LPs. The intention was to give any extraterrestrials that discovered these Exploring Voyagers, an idea of what life on earth would be like. So they recorded on those gold records the sounds of earth. Things like the ocean surf. Uh, things like uh, animal calls. Uh, things like thunder and the sound of rain. Things like the, the beat of a human heart. But they also put on there... Musical selections, just to give whoever would find this an idea of who we are as a people on this planet. 30 years later, Annie Dryan was the woman who chose that the music to be put on there, was asked to reflect on the pieces of music that she chose to put on this gold record. And when she got to Beethoven's Cavatina movement and Opus 130, she paused and she said this. When I first heard this piece of music, I thought, Beethoven, how can I ever repay you? What can I ever do for you that would be commensurate with what you've just given me? And so as soon as my colleague said, this message is going to last for a thousand million years, I thought of this great, beautiful, sad piece of music. Because in the margins of his manuscript... Beethoven had written one word, Sehnsucht, a German word, which means longing, longing. Part of what we wanted to capture, she went on to say in the Voyager message, was the great longing we feel as a human race. So in the end, NASA chose a great song about human longing and launched it into space. It was as if NASA scientists were saying to the rest of the universe, this is who and what we are as human beings, creatures of longing. Actually, that's exactly what Jesus is saying in our text today. We are people of longing. We are people of a deep yearning. We are people who have a deep thirst for something. And what Jesus is saying is that thirst is quenched in him. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 7. The Word of God says, After this, Jesus went around Galilee, purposely staying away from uh, Judea because the Jews were waiting to take his life. But when the Feast of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one wants to become a public figure, acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come, for you any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify what it does is evil. You go to the feast, I'm not yet going up, because for me the time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast, the Jews were watching for him and asking, where is that man? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having studied? Jesus answered my teaching is not my own it comes from him who sent me if anyone chooses to do god's will he will find out whether my teaching comes from god or whether i speak on my own he who speaks on his own does so to gain honor for himself but he who speaks but uh but he who works for the honor of the one who sent him is a man of truth there is nothing false about him Has not Moses given you the law, yet not one of you keeps the law? Why are you trying to kill me? You're demon possessed, the crowd answered. Who's trying to kill you? Jesus said to them, I did one miracle, and you're all astonished. Yet because Moses gave you circumcision, though actually it did not come from Moses, but from the patriarchs, you circumcise a child on the Sabbath. Now if a child can be circumcised on the Sabbath, So that the law of Moses may not be broken. Why are you so angry with me for healing the whole man on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances and make a right judgment. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began asking, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly. They're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that this man is the Christ? But we know where this man is from, and when the Christ comes, no one will know where he's from. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I'm from. I am not from here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I am from him, and he sent me. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Christ comes, he will do more miraculous signs than this man. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees, then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him, Jesus said, I am with you only for a short time, and then I go to be with the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we can't find him? Will he go to our people, live live scattered among the Greeks, and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, streams of living water will flow from within him. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to this time, the spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing these words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus some wanted to seize him but no one laid a hand on him Finally the temple guards went back to the chief priests and Pharisees who asked him who asked them why didn't you bring him in No one ever spoke like this man does the guards declared You mean he has deceived you also the Pharisees retorted Has any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him No But this mob knows nothing of the law. There's a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier, who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn anyone without first hearing him to find out what he's doing? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it, and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Oh, Father God, I pray that you will help me to just disappear. And that you will speak to your people through your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. When we read this text, you simply have to. You have to know the context. Otherwise it it will all be lost. The whole impact will be lost. Look at me with at verse two. This gives us the whole impact, the whole context of of the what's going on here in verse 2 we see that this was the feast of tabernacles this was the the uh, one of the three pilgrimage feasts that all israelites were were asked to come to this whole encounter is in the context of the feast of tabernacles now the feast of tabernacles is was a harvest feast and it was uh, usually around the October time frame, and so it's a big celebration of of bringing in the harvest. This was about six months before uh, the the Passover, the final Passover. So Jesus is in his last six months of ministry. The next Passover is when they they crucify him. Six months about before the Holy Spirit is given, as John indicates here. Feast of Tabernacles lasted about uh, eight days. And so, when in verse 14, when it says Jesus went up halfway through, he waited four days in Galilee to then go down to Jerusalem and start teaching. This feast is also known as, and maybe this is how you, you uh, know it, the Feast of, of Booths or the celebration of Booths. This is because this feast. The reason for this feast was to remind the Jewish people of their wilderness wanderings, of the 40 years in the wilderness. And so what they would do is instead of living in their houses, people would build little shanties or little little makeshift booths out in front of their house or in behind, and they would actually move for that eight days out of their house, out of the comfort and security of their house and into this makeshift, temporary booth to remind them of what their brothers went through, to remind them of impermanence and not permanence, to remind them of them depending on God and not what they had. Now each day in this ceremony, in this feast, a ceremony would take place very interesting ceremony where the people would gather in the morning and a priest would lead them out of the temple outside Jerusalem and he would take a golden pitcher and he would scoop out of the pool of Siloam water. And as he was scooping that water out of the pool of Siloam, the people would chant Isaiah 12, Three, which says, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. So you can get a picture of the priest taking water out of that pool. And, and all these throngs of people chanting, with joy you draw water from the wells of salvation. With joy you draw water from the wells of salvation. And the priest would then take this full picture and lead the crowd back into the temple. And he would walk up the stairs to the altar where the where the sacrifices were made. And he would take that gold pitcher, and before all the people, he would pour the water out of the pitcher onto the altar. The whole ceremony was meant to bring back to people's memory Exodus 17 it's printed in your bulletin as a meditation Exodus 17 where where the people were dying of thirst and and God told Moses to go out in front of the people and take his staff and strike a rock and water gushed out of the rock and saved those people this whole every day the 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 feast was focused on this great saving act of God a thirsty people, a people that thought they were going to die of thirst in the wilderness desert, being given life-giving water from the rock. And at that moment, on the last day, Jesus stands up when the priest is pouring the water. He stands up and says in a loud voice, Verses 37 and 38. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He's taking the whole focus of of the whole feast and he's saying, it's me. Whoever believes in me, streams of living water, water that will save you. I am the water that will save you. Kent Hughes wrote, outside of the cross, this is probably the most visually dramatic event of Jesus' life. James Boyce wrote, what Jesus is doing is he's proclaiming the core of the gospel. The crux of redemptive history. Because what Jesus is saying is, I am the reason that Exodus 17 was preserved for you. I am the reason that that God did that miracle 1,500 years ago. I'm the real water that can save you. The water from the rock was meant to help you see me. That's why he stood up and said in a loud voice and got everybody's attention, I'm the only one who can satisfy the world's deep thirst. That's why Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, and that's our first point, if anyone is thirsty, that's the great call. The great call is to anyone. It's the universal call of the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that can quench the world's great longing, the great thirst. This feast was, like I said, a pilgrimage feast And so it demanded that everybody within a 20-mile radius come. But many people from from all over the world came to these feasts. As we see in six months when the Passover, another one of the pilgrimage feasts, we see there when Pentecost came, there were people in Acts 2 from all around the world. And that's the same with this feast. So when he stood up and said this, he is crying out to everyone. Everyone, come to me. The universal call of the gospel goes out to everyone. That's what we're commissioned to do. That's the the commissioning of Matthew 28 and of Mark 16 and of Luke 24 and of Acts 1. Our commission is to go out and tell everyone, anyone, about the gospel. It is to be a wide call. It is to be an indiscriminate call. It is to be a great call of people to come to Christ to drink. We tend to think that that's a new covenant thing. Well, yeah, we have the Great Commission here in, in our New Testament books, but there's no real Old Testament thing. It was just the Israelites. No. From the beginning to the end and all, sprinkled all throughout the Old Testament, the call was to go out to anyone. Think of, think of uh, Abr- Abram's call. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. This is a, a call to the world. and anyone call. It closes. The, the, the old covenant closes in Malachi 1.10 when it says, All the nations will come to me. It's a call to the nations. When the, when the temple was, was prayed over by Solomon... Listen to his prayer. He says this in part of his prayer, that all the peoples on earth may know the Lord is God and there is no other. The temple was for everybody. I mean, Jonah was called to go to Nineveh and, and tell the anyone's there to repent. His call is wide. His invitation is to everybody. Anybody. And yet, as the, the Lord is always swinging the door open, you know, our hearts are always have our shoulder to the door, trying to keep it closed. And I mean, that, that, that's what we see in Israel. Their shoulder was to the door for so long that by the time it got to Jesus, they hated the Gentiles, they refused to tell the Gentiles the good news. Took the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 to finally get them to say, oh, maybe this is for everybody and not just us. And you know, before we go condemning the Jews for having their shoulder against the door, we do the exact same thing, guys. You know, as, as Jesus is saying, go tell anyone, go tell everyone indiscriminately. I don't care who it is or what they do or, or, or what they look like, we're constantly putting our shoulder to the door and closing the door. Taking that wide call and making it narrow. That's the natural inclination of churches today. And it I mean you see it in two ways. One is that churches get curled in, I called it. I call it. Where they just care about themselves, have you ever been a part of that kind of church where there really isn't a lot of, of outward-looking, it's all inward-looking. You can tell these churches because they they quarrel and fight about silly things. and they think that they're so important. We close the door by becoming curled in and we stop evangelizing. And then we do it even in our evangelism, don't we? The call isn't to anyone. It's to the right type of people. It's to the people that we're comfortable with. It's the people that are like us. Martin Luther King Jr. said famously the 11 a.m. hour on Sunday morning is the most segregated time in America. I mean, racially he was talking about, and that's true. But also socially, the social groups that we hang with, that's who we want to share with. Or economically, I'm comfortable with people at a certain economic level I don't like that. Uncomfortable, those one-percenters. Uncomfortable, the very poor. Just that comfort middle. Generationally. Comfortable with, you know, people 10 years above and below me. That would be a great church to be a part of. Physically. You know, we look for the people that are physically like us. I've said here... Many times, this church should seek to be so inclusive, so anyone-oriented, that we should invite the goths and those persons that are pierced and the people that show their midriff and the people that smell like smoke. They should be sitting next to you. Those are the people. We should be inviting So we put our shoulder to the door. Because the great call of the gospel goes out to anyone. The universal call is totally inclusive. The universal call is totally inclusive. So who are you inviting to Alpha? People that are just like you? And make you comfortable? Anyone. Anyone. Because all share the same great condition. That's the second point. We all share the same great condition. There's a great call, but there's also a great condition that we share with everybody. You see, everybody is thirsty. Everybody is thirsty, and Jesus says, "Anyone who is thirsty." When he says that, he's not saying, "Well, I know a couple of you in the desert when they were before the rock and Moses was standing for them." Uh, well, there's, a, I know there's, uh, you know, one million of you are thirsty, and you know the other 14 million, you know, just don't come to the water and drink. They were parched, and so the the, the offer is to everybody because everybody shares that thirst. Again, remember the context of tabernacles. The priest is pouring that water onto the altar, symbolizing the water gushing from the rock. And the Israelites, 1,500 years ago, were literally standing before that rock that was gushing and were dying of thirst. We use that euphemistically, but they were actually dying of thirst. You know, when they went to Moses, when you read that in Exodus 17 and also in Numbers 20, when they went to him, they just weren't complaining because they wanted as, as you know, food. They wanted garlic and onions. You remember that. These people were in the desert and they were going to die. And that is what Jesus is saying, is everyone is literally dying of thirst, British theologian N.T. Wright, who always has a wonderful way of putting things, says there is all the difference in the world between waking up in a single bed and waking up in a double bed with nobody on the other side. Many in our Western culture may be atheists or agnostics, but they still find themselves wondering why the other side of the bed still feels warm and the sheets a little rumpled. Putting his finger on that thirst. He's putting his finger on that longing that we all have. That's the, that's that Zinsort, That wonderful German word that's hard to translate, actually. That's what Annie D- uh, Dryan was conveying. We are creatures of longing. We all wake up in the double bed with nobody next to us, with it warm and rumpled. And we go, isn't there something more? We all have this intense feeling of missing something. A thirst that we cannot satisfy. We're all called to go to the anyones of the world and tell them they're thirsty. That's what we're called to do. To go and say, you're thirsty. You don't know it, but you're thirsty. And here's a cool glass of water called Jesus Christ. You know, we talk about service in this church in the sense of we're giving people a cool glass of water in the context of the gospel. When you do something for somebody, we are to give a cool glass of water for people that are parched and dying of thirst in the context of, we are to help them with their fuel in the context of the gospel. To help them with their electricity bill or help them with their this or that or the other, help them shovel their, their sidewalk in the context of the gospel. Because they're thirsty. And many times they don't know they're thirsty. Many times when you tell people they're thirsty, you know what they say? I'm not thirsty. What are you talking about? I'm fine. When you tell people about Jesus, when you share Jesus, people many times, most of the time when you share, this is the reaction you'll get. I'm good. If you've ever shared Christ more than a couple times, you know what I'm talking about. I'm good. No, no. I'm okay. They're saying, I'm not thirsty. I don't relate. But the application can also be in this room for believing, professing followers of Christ. Maybe some of you here in the room today as I'm preaching are saying, "Hmm, parched for Christ. Don't know. That doesn't ring a bell. I understand it intellectually, but at a heart level I'm going mm, I'm not parched for Christ. He's not that central as water is in my life. I'm simply not that thirsty for him. To that, I would challenge you today and say watch out what you're drinking. Take 3 steps back from your life. And look at the water fountains you're drinking from. You may be quenching that innate thirst for Christ with other things. Well, just think about it a second. If you've ever been really thirsty, that's all you can think about, right? Give me, give me water or give me anything wet. It becomes the focus, the center of your life at that moment. And that's what spiritual thirst is supposed to do. It's supposed to take Jesus and put him central in your life. But, like I said, we can drink from many different fountains. This world offers many different drinking fountains. Lines them up on the wall and says, take your pick. Drink freely from any of these. I'm just going to mention three to you. The water fountain of security water says, you want to feel safe? You want to feel secure? Drink from the water fountain of money. Try and get that money enough so that you feel safe and secure. Is it any wonder why Jesus preached and taught on money more than any other subject? Because that's the probably the first water fountain right in front of you. This will give you the security, that thirst for security that we all have. You have to be careful. Brothers and sisters, be careful. Don't quench that thirst with finances. Whether it be having finances or wanting to have finances because it's universal, guys. If you have it, you're feeling secure and you're quenching your thirst. If you don't have it, that's the fountain that you're pushing the button going, "Come on, come on, give me water, give me water, give me water." True quenching of that thirst is found in Jesus Christ alone. Second one is pleasure. boy, that, that water fountain of pleasure. This one is incredibly dangerous. You know, the pursuit of pleasure, the world says pursue pleasure, whatever pleases you, that's it. Men predominantly here, that's why pornography is so damaging. Because you drink from that and it takes Jesus right out of the center of your life. Don't quench that deep thirst with, trying to find lasting pleasure in those things that's the the only thing that can that can truly slake that deep thirst is jesus and the third one is, is I'll mention and there's like I said a line of them on the wall is other relationships the substitute of other relationships trying to satisfy that deep longing thirst that focuses your life on boyfriends, teens, girlfriends, teens. That's what the world is feeding you, teenagers. That's what the world is feeding you. You you, want to find meaning and purpose and value. You want to, to slake that thirst, to quench that thirst, that desire that is burning in you, that new desire, by the way, that's burning in you. Find a boyfriend or girlfriend and invest in them. That will bring you satisfaction. And let me tell you, teens with boyfriends, girlfriends, marrieds with spouses, when they let you down, and they will, (laughs) they'll disappoint. It sends you into a tailspin if that's the water fountain that you're saying, that'll satisfy me. It'll send your life into a tailspin. Be careful on what you're quenching your deep thirst in. Only Jesus can quench that thirst. It's very interesting. In the year 2000, a scientist in Illinois named William Walsh studied the strands of hair, interestingly enough, of Ludwig von Beethoven the same guy who the music went out with the Voyager. And he made a dramatic discovery. Dr. Walsh found that Beethoven's body had 100 times the normal amount of lead, which led him to the conclusion that Beethoven, when he died early at 57, died of lead poisoning. He did some research, and he found that Beethoven when he needed to relax, he would go to this certain mineral spa and he would soak in this mineral spa. And over the years, that thing that Beethoven thought was giving him great relaxation and focus was killing him. Brothers and sisters, we have to be very careful on what we seek to satisfy that thirst. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And then he follows it up with, whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within. And that's the third great claim. The great claim is that he is that water. Whoever believes in me, he is the water that saves your soul. He's the only one who can quench that deep, deep thirst. That's Jesus' great claim. It's interesting, in Exodus 17, after the water comes out of the rock, the passage ends by saying this, and Moses named the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Masa and Meribah, quarreling and testing. Remember, for the last time, the context in which this whole whole encounter takes place is the Feast of Tabernacles, intended to remind them of the wilderness wanderings. What did they do in the wilderness wanderings? What's the one word that defines the Israelites in the wilderness? Grumbling. They were grumblers. They were quarrelers. They were constantly testing the Lord. Well, if you're God, do this. Isn't that what we see here? Jesus coming to the Feast of of Tabernacles in him claiming to be from above and them testing that. Him saying he's from the Father and them quarreling with him. Him having authority to teach and they, and they engage him on that. Him saying he's going to return to the Father and, and, them, and them arguing over that. The whole dialogue is quarreling and testing. His own brothers, right? Show yourself. <laughs> Come on, if you're who you say you are, testing him. The crowd saying he's a liar and a deceiver, the Pharisees trying to kill him. And when Jesus finally claims to be the Messiah, the living water of the world, the world is dying for thirst. The fulfillment of Exodus 17, he says, they fight over this. If you look at verse 40, it says, on hearing these words, what Jesus just said, some of the people said, surely this is the prophet. Others said, he is the Christ. Still others asked, how can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say the Christ will come from David's family and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, 43, the people were divided because of Jesus. They were quarreling, asking the same questions the Israelites did in Exodus 17. Is the Lord really among us or not? See the Christ or not? And that's the question, guys. That's the question. Is Jesus the Messiah or not? Is Jesus a Savior or not? If you remember Exodus 17, Moses was commanded to strike the rock and out of it came the water that saved them. That's the picture God gave his people of salvation. Think about that for a second. The picture God preserved for them in Exodus 17 was, you strike it, it breaks, and out comes life. That's the picture God gave them 700 years ago, and that's the picture God continues to give us today. This picture here. It's the same picture. In Isaiah 53, we read, surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him. That's old English, but do you know what that means? God struck him and broke him. The Savior has to be struck. Before us today is the same picture the broken savior, the cracked rock. You know, when when I take this and I break it for you, that's the rock. He took it for you. He was broken, so that we can be whole. He bled so that we don't have to. Whoever believes in this, that he absorbed your punishment and he gives you streams of living water, eternal life, you will have those streams flowing out of you. That's what this table's about. He still gives us pictures, guys. This is the picture. Let's take and remember and celebrate. Remember the, the Israelites cheering when they're, he's pouring out the water. Let's cheer as we take the bread and we take the wine. Elders, come forward.